Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. Thank you for listening to us this week. If you like what you're hearing or enjoy the show, please share it with a friend. This is the biggest way that podcasts grow. Also, say positive things about us on Twitter and Facebook. Retweet, reshare, say why you like it. If you haven't yet given us a five-star review, Pause what you're doing. Pause your recording. Pause your playing of our recording and give us a five-star rating and review. Follow us on Twitter at, at @clergylay, and join our Facebook discussion group. And the way you join our Facebook discussion group is you find our Facebook page and then you hit the button that says join group. I see a lot of you visit the page and then you mm. don't join the group. You should join the group. Join the group and let's make it a big raucous discussion. Yeah, the page is, the page itself is pretty lame. It's, pretty dormant. Yeah. And that's that's like my fault. I'm Kirk Haberman, a church musician, and this is my brother Chris, a priest. Hi, Chris. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday to you. That's when we record. I don't know when this is coming out. Are you gonna get? Are you gonna put this out today? Time is a flat circle. <laughs> I never put it out today. It always <laughs> comes out Friday afternoon ish. So well, happy Thursday days. to our listeners then who will listen to it not on a Thursday. Have, we've had a we've had a change of, of weather here, which of course in the upper Midwest is completely illusory. Um, <laughs> but uh, last last Monday uh, we were skiing and <laughs> yesterday uh, I mean it's it's in the 60s this week and our kids are out rollerblading. So I uh, they got rollerblades for Christmas. I don't know if I mentioned that on the podcast and we, we didn't have snow at Christmas time. So the kids did a little bit of rollerblading, but I neglected to purchase them safety equipment. And so we went out rollerblading yesterday. Safety just... equipment. <laughs> uh, yeah. The, the little wrist guards, the, the elbow, the knee pads, Isaac sure could have used them. And so t- those did, came in the mail. They look today. like little Tony Hawks now. Uh, if Tony Hawk roll, <laughs> rode rollerblades, then yes. Uh, yeah, hopefully. And, and if they, if Tony Hawk were super young, Tony Hawk's old now, I think. He's in his he, 50s, uh, I think. I, th- I think he kept, kept, uh, kept on keeping on for a long time. Long, oh, long, he, long he past. He did. When most of us would hang up our, ska- our skateboard. Yeah, I mean, most of us who never skateboarded. Um, anyway, what's, <laughs> what's new in the Shire, Kirk? He's 52. Okay. Yeah. That's impressive. So my kids look exactly like a 52 year old skateboarder when they, yeah, I, uh, I loved, I love the, uh, the, the pictures you sent uh, yesterday of uh, the skateboarding skateboarding. Oh my God. <laughs> of the rollerblading. <laughs> Great. Uh, yeah. Kirk, I, I, 
this always happens. They were holding hands and I whipped out my phone to take a picture of them holding hands. And oh, by the time I took the picture, they had let go of hands. It was, it was, yeah. it would have been a sweet picture though. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so yesterday, um, I had, I had several moving parts and, uh, had to make sure that, 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 that dinner was, I, I had a fun idea. I had a thing I wanted to do, but I wanted to also make it low maintenance and not be spending a lot of time in the kitchen. And I thought to myself, self, what is something that you can get going and, uh, and then, and then come to later and, and, and spend minimal time and yet make a quality meal. A roast. Uh, that, that is a really good guess. However, what do I have nearly a pound of in my fridge? Sauerkraut. Uh, we talked about this several weeks ago. Oh, I, I, I accosted a poor oh, FedEx you, you lady. Have yeast. You have yeast. Okay. Yeah. I have nearly a pound of yeast just waiting to, like, to, a, a pound of a pound of organic potential waiting to be turned into a grand meal at, at any given point in time. So I, so I made pizza dough, let it rise. And I made for the first time in my life, deep dish style pizza. Ooh, really? Which, yes. Yes. Which Christopher, um, yeah, actually it does all the work for you. Like you just like bloop, plop it in the pan. <laughs> You got to kind of push it up the sides to make sure it climbs the sides. But other than that, then you like bloop. You the whole the whole thing with deep dish, um, like the guts of it, is you don't layer it. So you know how like when conventional pizza, like half of the artistry and the time is like rolling out the dough, pulling out the dough, spinning the dough, putting the dough on the thing, then you the throw, sauce you throw on the, the thing. You throw the dough up in the air many times. Yeah, 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 yeah. All that, all that stuff, and and like. It's, it's like weird or lumpy or misshapen or unsightly if you do it all wrong. The whole are thing. Still of talk, are pizza, we still talking about dough? We're still. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean. Right. So. <laughs> deep dish pizza. You, you drop the dough and thing. Plop. You drop it in the 13 by 9 pan. You, you just you spend no more than 30 seconds making sure it's distributed and pushed up the sides. And then the, 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 the meat and the sauce, um, you just like literally stir it <laughs> in a skillet and then dump it in plop as well. Are we appreciating the sound effects? I, yeah, plop the it plop. In. Yeah, it, it all sounds the same though. I mean, it... Lots of plops, lots of plopping. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then you put the cheese on, put foil over the top, you walk away, man. That's it. So you did deep dish. You didn't do Chicago style with the sauce on the top. It did not, did not. Okay. The recipe that I was following was okay. was deep dish. Uh, that's the next. I was worried about my kids getting weird about it. Sure. Which yeah, a couple yeah. of them did anyway, um, because they discovered I didn't mince them up enough. They discovered I had sauteed an onion in the ground beef. <gasps> Shock and horror. Right. So, Brian, boy, those Brian, those kids sound a lot like a, a young Kirk. No skilled surgeon pulling out shrapnel. <laughs> from like a, a torn, ripped up knee from a war wound ever with greater care and delicacy withdrew like a, like a tiny shard of a, a fragment of a bullet. Um, then Bryden with again, like again, the are you describing, are you describing your kids or yourself? Because Listen, I remember dad, being we, horrified we all pay the price. We all pay the price. Regurgitating a mouthful of something and pointing out the smallest speck of an onion you found in it. Yeah. Well, the other thing that I would regurgitate when I was, when I was younger, I had asthma issues. You were, you were a toddler at this point. I don't know if you remember this, but the, um, the amoxicillin, I would not take the pills. 
And so my parents would try to, and they, they were, they were be defeated before they began because the problem is the beads and the amoxicillin pills are like, you, you can't, they don't really break down. So it's not like a powder, like some pills, if you, if you like were to cut open the gel cap pills, you just find powder within. They're actually like beads, like almost like the, like the styrofoam packing beads. Like you ever see something beads. Yeah. yeah beads. Yeah. Beads. Be be I'm doing an arrested development thing. I don't know. You're, are you not getting that reference? Christopher. Job, that, Job's like, Job's not on board. No. Okay. Arrested development. That was like 2004. Yeah. I, I had, it's due for a rewatching. I was going to say you're, you're aware you're allowed to watch it again, right? I, sh I should. O only I the, should. the greatest uh, television show perhaps of all good. time. Top five. Was, Certainly yeah. top five. So you're right. I am, I am, uh, there's, there's something grand and karmic that's happening in my children. <laughs> Um, finding the, the 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 tiniest speck of evidence of a forbidden ingredient, yeah, yeah. But anyhow, yes. So I am basking in the glow of a magnificent success of a of a new recipe and new vistas open before me. And yes, we are using, in fact, that pound of yeast. <laughs> it may take One a while to get through spoon it. Spoon at it a is... time. How many teaspoons in a pound? How many teaspoons? Okay, first pound? question. First question. How much yeast did you use last night? Two teaspoons. Okay. So I was not that far off. Yeah. Yeah, it's so it's okay. in like 17 years, you'll use up this pound and then you'll be able to accost another deliver. Well, perhaps it would be delivery no, drone it, next time. It'll it's, be a drone. it's yeast. It's a pound of yeast. <laughs> <laughs> and some camera on the drone will report me to a psychiatric institute. <laughs> what was it that did Kirk in? Oh, it was yelling at a drone. <laughs> but it was an excitement. <laughs> I wanted I wanted the drone to understand how much more beautiful life is with an abundance of yeast. The other uh, interesting, not karmic thing, um, of course, we joke when we use the word karma. We don't believe in that. That's not a real thing. Uh, it's, but it's, right. it's, it's, um, is uh, mom would try to sneak things past you, and you are in turn trying to sneak things past your children. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And, I, and I remember, like, our parents had divergent views on how to get the recalcitrant child to take a pill. <laughs> So, so dad, dad uh, leaned more towards the carrot, the, the metaphorical carrot, and mom more towards the metaphorical stick. I remember at one point, my mom saying, like, I'm not, I'm not, do, I'm not doing the food thing. We're not doing that. You're doing it right now. And I'm like, I, I'm not taking a pill. You want, you want me to swallow that? She's like, um, actually, you're going to lay down right now, <laughs> open your mouth, plug your nose, and here's what, here's what we do with dogs. Like, what do you mean do with dogs? She's like, yeah, they put it in the dog's mouth and they massage its throat. I'm like, what? <laughs> and like, okay. so like, she like physically coaxed me. Like I'm like laying on my bed. Yeah. So she was like, I, I'm not doing the food thing. So. I mean, didn't you have a metaphor about uh, uh, something makes the medicine go down a few weeks, few weeks ago? <laughs> it yeah, wasn't a was spoonful that? of sugar. It was something less apt. <laughs> yeah. What was it? doesn't matter <laughs> it, it was it was not as good as a spoonful of sugar. no yeah especially when that one was sitting right there yeah yeah well it's, i mean speaking of beating people into taking pills there were times when our lord did resort to violence did he not indeed
This week's gospel comes from John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drew them all, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, Kirk, it is important for us to remember uh, what is going on here. So, first off, the Passover. Uh, and there are scholars who will tell you which Passover this was. And, and you may note, uh, you listener, of course, Kirk noted this, that in the Synoptic Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this story occurs in the final week of Jesus' life. It occurred uh, following, uh, b- between Palm Sunday and um, Good Friday. But in John's account, it happens in chapter 2. So, I mean, there, there are various ways of, of approaching how to uh, make, make sense of this. You know, were there two cleansings? Um, is, is it possible that, that John, is, who's the theological gospel, was less concerned about chronology and, and more interested in just presenting? Um, of course, it's, it's hard for us as Western thinkers to think about writing an, an orderly account that's not chronological, that's more thematic. But in, but in that culture, it would have been totally normal to, um, to, to say... Uh, to tell the story out of out of order and to organize it a different way. So anyway, um, the, the, we we want to acknowledge this while also acknowledging that the God's word is is it's God breathed, it's reliable, it's trustworthy, it's um, it's fit for uh, for teaching um, and all the things that it says about it itself. So um, the Passover is at hand. So we have all these diaspora Jews throughout the Roman Empire that are coming into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And is that technically correct? Can we call them diaspora Jews? Like the diaspora is the event that occurs after the Bar Kokhba revolt in 135, right? I know that's a historical technicality. <laughs> okay. Uh, these are yeah, Jews you mean just living... to, they're, they're Jews all over the Roman world. Jews all over the Roman right. world, all, all over the Mediterranean world. Uh, yeah. And, and, and of course, uh, we see this uh, on the day of Pentecost, Parthians and Medes and, and mm-hmm. Phrygians and Pamphylians. And, and, what do you and, call me? We see I'm this sorry, whole list ahead. of 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 people who are, um, and there are all these Jewish feasts annually. So I mean, I, I can't imagine what it was like to to be returning to Jerusalem. I I don't know if they would return for for each of these feasts. Um, I'm not sure, but they're there. And because it's impractical to to transport animals over this distance, uh, they would just purchase the animals for sacrifice there in Jerusalem. 
And while at one time these animals were, they set up their stalls across the Kidron Valley on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. But by this time, this had moved inside the temple courts, surely in, in the, the, the Gentile courts. So it's, it's important to think about what the temple is. So it's, it is the locus of Jewish worship. So the, the thought of kind of low church evangelical churches today as places of, of teaching, of, of gathering for, for kind of a sermon and, and, and some singing uh, kind of match uh, synagogue worship sort of in a way. Um, where uh, in the synagogue we see usually a, a reading. We see Jesus read until a certain point, and then you stop, and then you sit down and you teach on that scripture that you just read. But uh, the actual, you know, the the temple cult kind of stuff, the the sacrificial worship, you know, the 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 presence of God, the the holy of holies, um, the mercy seat, those things within the temple. A lot of Jewish worship dealt with the temple, and this temple that had taken 46 years to build was the largest temple in the whole world at that time. It was, it was indeed this wonder. And the point of that was that um, Gentiles could come into this outer court and they could look at this glorious thing and connect that to the, the, the living God. And for this to become a marketplace, what was in fact an abomination? I mean, how do you worship when the sound of animals and, and just the noise of commerce going on and, and this, this um, makes Jesus angry. And so do you want to talk a little bit about why there was commerce in the temple court, why there had to be, it was a bit of a racket, right? There didn't have to be. Right. <laughs> um, so it, it, it had moved into the court. Now it's interesting. Scholars disagree about whether or not there was, um, what's the word I'm looking for. This is, this is terrible. How Thursdays I, <laughs> When I work out on Thursdays, it takes all the brains. And, and so I record this podcast when I can't summon simple words like graft. It's yes. not clear that, 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 that it's not, there's some really good, like one, one of the best evangelical scholars I'm aware of is D.A. Carson, just a brilliant, brilliant scholar. And he has a really good uh, commentary on John. And he doesn't, he doesn't, it's a common thing to say, yeah, graft was built into the system. Like they were ripping people off. They were charging like a surcharge to, to um, not only, purchase these animals. So like, let me just list all the different things that were issues, but then move on to the second issue. So the first thing is, it's a matter of holiness that, that there was an exchange going on and it's possible that these animals were not uh, animals without blemish, which they were supposed to be. It's possible that these were, were kind of the more sickly. I mean, they're <laughs> just like living in a temple and it's, it's like, religion at its worst right yeah. checking the box is like okay we go in and we we pay the fee and then we um sacrifice the thing um and and you're just checking the box but um it's also possible that there was serious upcharging going on that as you were you were not able to and again i don't scholars don't seem to agree on this either some people say that that um they weren't able to use imperial coinage because the face of caesar was on right. it which certainly is true but other people right. point to the fact that the Tyrian currency, which means from Tyre, that that right. was that that not only lacked the the emperor's face on the coin, but also it was a higher grade of silver. It was more pure. And um, so when, you know, these silver pieces that Judas got for betraying, the, these were Tyrian shekels. 
And so they, they were doing two things at once. They were paying their, their temple tax, which was half a shekel once a year. And they're, um, which had to be paid in Tyrian coinage. Hey, and Christopher. Possibly, yeah. I know how to build your next church. <laughs> temple tax. Money changing temple tax. Yes. All right. Continue. Got to, got to pay the toll to get in the, <laughs> into the right. church. And um, so, so it, the fact that there, Jesus is angry about a number of things, I'm sure. Um, number one, there might be graph going on. Number two, these aren't lambs without blemish. And in fact, uh, you know, there, there was provision built into, into God's law that you didn't have to offer a lamb if you were poor that you would. Um, but perhaps people who could had enough money to offer a lamb didn't because of the, the upcharge on um, both the currency exchange and purchasing a lamb where they, they were offering perhaps doves. And so there are, are pigeons. Um, there are a number of things that were, that were uh, wrong. Um, so Jesus, this, this is a premeditated act. He, he makes a whip of cords. This isn't something that you could just like, this wasn't a crime of passion. <laughs> took a little bit of plan to be, to, to say, I'm going to fashion this whip out of cords and, and drive, uh, drive people out. And, and that's a matter of holiness of, 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 uh, saying like, no, like this, this checking of boxes, um, this is not acceptable, but the bigger thing I would say is, is that Jesus was in fact replacing the temple that, that G that, that, that the locus of God's presence isn't in fact, like God doesn't live in temples built by human hands. Right. Um, but Jesus is the temple. The presence of God was in the person of Jesus. And so worship forevermore was, was going to be changed. And now, with that said, um, in the book of Acts, once Jesus was raised and ascended, that, that, that Peter and James continued to go to the temple and pray. That, that temple worship con continued, not necessarily sacrifice. Jesus was our once and for all sacrifice. And that, that's, that's an important term, once for all um, and that, and that refers to a number of things. Um, God's once for all revelation uh, in scripture, which isn't added to or subtracted from. Our full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and what? Satisfaction? Satisfaction. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which used to be something we called right one, but now is called the standard. renewed uh, Anglican standard text. Yeah. For, for um, prayer of consecration. So anyway, um, that, that's the big thing is, is that Jesus was showing that, uh, and, and so we see in those latter verses there, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. This temple that was cleansed um, is going to be replaced by the person of Jesus. And that's what he's indicating here. So Kirk, what do you see here in this text? Yeah, so uh, I, I have just a very, very narrow point that's, that's uh, striking to me. Um, and that is, uh, I think, I think, um, in American Christianity, we're often confronted with Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. And um, I tell you, uh, one day you will worship in spirit and truth as a proof text, um, kind of among American kind of snake belly low evangelicals um, for uh, why there should be no sacred spaces. And, um, and that's kind of presented as John's the, the Johannine Jesus take on, um, on, on worship, like worship in spirit and truth. Like I'm in the spirit, I can worship wherever. And, uh, and, and, and something in, in me is always graded at the way that that's preached. And it just struck me this week, um, looking and preparing for this, this coming Sunday and looking at this, 
this text that um, we can't we cannot say that Jesus was an iconoclast. Um, we cannot say that he was a destroyer of temples and wanted to um, destroy worship as a, as as something that has a locus as as the presence of God amongst his people with a particular locus or mediated um, through a particular place and time, a particular body, a particular sacrificed creature. Um, it's just not true at all. And we see that here. Um, uh, rather, uh, the disciples, um, oftentimes they don't have eyes to see what's happening in there. Like they, they misinterpret what he's saying or they don't understand or, or Lord, what does this mean? Or how can anyone follow such a teaching? But here they understand exactly what these happening what's happening, they say, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So, so clearly Jesus has, has, has a deep passion for the holiness of the temple, mm -hmm. belief in the real presence of God's holiness at the temple, and the necessity and uh, the sanctifying work of, of temple worship and the mediating work of temple worship. And so what that means is um, what, whatever we inherit from Jesus in the early church um, isn't discontinuous, but continuous with that, right? Um, he's not—he's not destroying it because it's stupid or it's incomplete. He, uh, what he's doing, which seems initially destructive, isn't destructive or iconoclastic at all. But it, rather, it's purifying. Yeah, um, I was going to say he's that? not destroying; he's—he's he's cleansing. <laughs> he's purifying. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, Jesus, uh, we see then in the next paragraph, Christopher, we see uh, in the second paragraph here. In verse 20, the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Um, now in our, in, in, in our Sunday worship, um, when we partake of Holy Communion, the temple of his body, which um, we see here, renders our churches made by mortal hands into temples of his presence. And this is why we believe in sacred spaces and that um, yes, we worship in spirit and truth, but we're not to use that to beat people over the head um, and say that um, the presence of God is no longer mediated and grace-filled um, in particular times and places and by particular physical vessels. Um, but rather we do have access to the temple, which is his body. <laughs> so, and in this way, um, the temple worship um, of the Jews, which was a type and shadow of our true temple worship now, um, isn't destroyed and discontinuous, but perfected and made true and perfect and holy um, with the temple worship of his body. So I said I had a very particular narrow point. <laughs> That's yeah. my very particular narrow point. What do you think? Yeah, and, and it's it's interesting, um, people who who would say well I, all i need to do is worship in spirit and truth i mean that's a that's a that's such a, a western individualistic right. <laughs> thing um and 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 i would say someone who would make that point apart from like institutional the institutional church would uh would probably be chasing uh a sense of christ's presence in in worship when we have an objective presence of Christ in worship, like you said, in, in the sacrament of Holy Communion, that, that Christ has promised to be present to us in that, in that particular way. This cup of, of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, Paul says in 1 Corinthians? 
Um, so if, if you want Christ's presence, um, there's a, 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 a place to get it. And that's with the gathered um, people of God. And, um, and it, it is with um, his, his body and blood that's offered for us. I guess I have another question for you as well. Um, perhaps there was a time when I was unsettled uh, by, by this occurring in chapter two in John. And uh, rather it's, it's um, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as you said, in the Synoptic Gospels, it occurs in his final trip to Jerusalem, right? So it's in the last week right after his triumphal entry. Um, and perhaps that once unsettled me. And like you, I've heard a, a wide variety of explanations. Um, and, and I don't know that all of them have been, any of them have been satisfactory to me. And yet I'm not, un, I'm not unsettled by it. Um, does, that, does that make me um, an unthinking believer, Christopher? Uh, I don't know, Kirk, uh, because then I'm an unthinking believer because like, <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't trouble me. I... I, I trust the reliability of scripture. And um, I, I also realize that I'm like people far smarter than me have come up with explanations. And it's interesting, the humility of, of many scholars of, of yeah. many, many will, will just merely just suggest options. And then some of them will be like, well, I think this is probably the one the, of these four possibilities. This is the one that I lean towards for these reasons, but very few um, slam dunk uh, will say, this is, this is what it is. And this is why, and those other ones are stupid. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, so I think that the likelihood of this happening twice. And again, like, who am I? I'm, I'm right. just, a, I'm just right. a guy. Like, I think the likelihood it's of this stipulated. happening. Yep. Yeah, I think the likelihood <laughs> of this happening twice is is pretty unlikely. Um, I because it's kind of it's kind of a big deal. <laughs> and you, know, you think if he did it once, would he like, have oh, the opportunity watch, yeah. to do it again? This, this guy, like, remember last time? Yeah, the guy, he's got a whip again. Stop him! Like, <laughs> and uh, I'm trying to remember, Kirk. I, I read a lot in, in a given week, and and I don't remember uh, which author or which scholar um, thought John's account was more reliable. Mm. Um, I, interesting but in my mind uh, it makes sense to be in more in the last week yeah um in that like this would have been such a provocative thing um for them it's to be like airing of grievances <laughs> whatever he's going to get off his chest now's the time <laughs> yeah he, they're like well what sign do you do you have and like the, like you know because jews demand signs right, right, um, right. Paul, paul says this in first first corinthians um in that in that great passage um uh well, and the shocking and thing his, about his that sign is, is his resurrection. It, it's something that that um, they will have to wait to see. Well, the shocking thing about that is what happens at the beginning of chapter two. Wedding at Cana. Yeah. yeah. Right. So they're demanding a sign right in the wake of now, to be fair, that was uh, Cana is not, you know, that's in Galilee. It's not by Jerusalem. Right. But but um, John Wesley marvels in his in his commentary. He just marvels like how blind to demand a sign Right in the wake right, of a right. public miracle, right, right. Yeah, I think I wonder if um, John John seems to have greater care um, than than maybe the synoptics do of a narrative structure like seven signs, mm -hmm. right? Um, like the John 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 has kind of an architectural plan, mm -hmm. and so he might have um, been for 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 purposes of the architecture of the book been placing it here. And not and not later. I don't know. I don't. It's just speculation. Well, I mean, sure. I mean, you pointed out the the woman at the well and uh, the Samaritan woman right. in, in the fourth chapter. I mean, so um, 
the, the first sign is significant in the changing of water into wine. And then this, um, which, I mean, this clearly leads to, um, you know, the time is coming and is now here, Jesus says, where, you know, we worship, you know, when, like the, that discussion that you reference is, yeah. is one of like, well, where do we worship? Is it on this hill or that yes, hill? Right, exactly. Area that they were kind of these um, other word that I, that's not coming to me because I'm old yeah. and tired and, um, but yeah. Samaritans were, 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 were not only ethnically sort of not, see, that's not, they, they were religiously, um, syncret, religious syncretists. That's the word I'm yeah. looking for. Um, and, and so their worship was a little bit, it was, it was impure. You can't be a little bit impure. You're either pure or you're not. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. So, um, so John, John has an agenda that he's building towards. Um, yeah. and of course the last sign is the, re, is, is the raising of Lazarus, you know, Right. I'm the resurrection of the life. Like, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's certainly something to keep in mind. I, I guess, let me, let me refine and focus and get, and get really specific in my observation here. And I'm, I'm like willing to be swatted down <laughs> on this. I mean, who am I? I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a humble layman, but, but I, um, I think what we see here very clearly, and a lot of times if we have our American super Protestant evangelical glasses on, we're blind to it. Um, what we see here very clearly is an affirmation that um, grace, mercy, spiritual benefit continue even after Jesus' life and work, after the ripping of the temple, which is so badly proof texted, so up the rif rif ripping of the temple curtain. Um, um, grace, mercy, um, spiritual benefit continues to be mediated through specific times and places and through specific physical media. Um, this is an affirmation of that, right? Yeah. Jesus is not delegitimizing what's happening at the temple, even during his life. Rather, he wants it to be done in good faith <laughs> with, yeah. with, a, with, a, with a heart that wants to sacrifice to God first fruits, not like garbage that was traded in or like bartered for. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the purity <laughs> of worship is important. And and so let's 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 also keep that in mind. So um, no matter if, if if you're a high church sacramentalist or if, if you're a low church evangelical, um, purity of worship is important, and, and that's what the season of Lent is about, Kirk. Yes. Right? That that um, of 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 looking inwardly, um, looking at our hearts, mm -hmm. um, confessing our sins, preparing ourselves for rend your hearts, not your garments, as yeah. Paul says. Yeah. Yeah. We, um, we don't want perfunctory religion. We don't want, um, we don't want to go through any sort of motions. We, we want to make sure that, that our, our confession, our, uh, our confession is complete, that we are examining every aspect of our hearts and our lives. Um, have and, I ever shared with you, the um, the chorister's prayer? Perhaps. Uh, <laughs> so, so the, the chorister's prayer is, um, uh, and, 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 Sometimes I go through seasons where with the choir at the end of choir practice, we'll pray this. And then, and then other times we'll pray other things in other seasons, but, but we'll pray, Lord, may those things which we sing with our lips, we believe in our hearts and those things we believe in our hearts show forth in our lives. Mm, yeah. And, um, and that's, that's praying for that, right? That, yeah. um, that, that, that we, that, that it become true and then, and then lived out. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'd say, and and the tie I would make to Lent is that that's the essence of the season. Yeah. Self examination and 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 purity, um, purifying our hearts, um, and having pure yeah. worship. Yeah. yeah, a kindled fart, a kindled. Oh my goodness, a kindled <laughs> heart, a kindled heart, a flame. Um, and uh, shall we talk about hearts made strangely warm, Christopher? Wesley's. Yes, let's talk about John and Charles Wesley. Okay. Yes, we are talking today about John and Charles Wesley for our theology portion. And I am so excited, Christopher, to talk about this. Um, yesterday, uh, yesterday on, uh, the, on, on Anglican liturgical calendars, um, we, uh, we marked John and Charles Wesley, priests and reformers of the church. And, uh, and, and I, I was just kind of marveling. We had a great Bam, bam, bam. Uh, three in a row. I only made two bams, so that was wrong. Bam, 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 bam. Bam, bam, bam. Bam, bam, bam. Three bams. <laughs> we had a, gr a great trilogy on March 1st, March 2nd, March 3rd of, um, of great British saints and holy men. Uh, March 1st was St. David's Day. Great day for the Welsh, uh, patron saint of Wales, bishop and apostle of Wales, and six, died in 601. And then March 2nd was uh, St. Chad, bishop of Litchfield and missionary. Um, died in 672. Uh, and these are these are great uh, saints in the early uh, English church, which Christopher, I was showing you before the show, inspired me. And I got from Amazon, Lord Bezos delivered, uh, Venerable Beads, the Ecclesiastical History of the English-Speaking People. I'm so excited to dive into this. I cannot believe I've not yet read this. Um, and I think I've shared with you, and listener, I don't know if I've shared with you, it is an aspiration of mine to begin um, when, when my children of an age and when, when, when the time is right to start doing walks in the summer, I'm a teacher, so I have the time to do it, start doing summer pilgrimages, um, around holy sites in England. And, um, this will really give me the background knowledge to do that. And then Wednesday to do it, to do it, um, really with kind of a, a full rich understanding in my mind and in my heart of our, of our spiritual heritage with the great English saints. Um, but Wednesday was uh, Charles and John Wesley, Christopher. And um, you and I have alluded to the Wesleys. We've expressed, um, uh, we've marveled at their contributions, their holiness. Uh, we've talked a little bit about their legacy and their effects, but we've never kind of devoted a, a really satisfactory chunk of time to it. And uh, now's the time to do it. John Wesley, we'll start with John and we'll talk about Charles's Wesley as well. Um, they, they both had cast enormous shadows. John is probably, John's shadow is probably a little longer. 
John Wesley was born in 1703. Uh, he was an Anglican clergyman, evangelist, and founder, along with his brother, Charles, of the Methodist movement in the Church of England, which sadly ended up spinning out and uh, becoming its own sect. Um, John was the second son of Samuel, um, himself a rector in the Church of England at Epworth. Someday I'll visit there. And Susanna Wesley, herself uh, uh, quite a, a, a towering person and personality. Um, he studied at, at Christ Church, Oxford, um, and graduated uh, with a degree and with um, uh, graduated as a, as a priest in the Church of England in six, 1724 was ordained in 1725 um, and uh, became a fellow at Lincoln College and entered into the priesthood. Um, he spent some time in Oxford in 1729. Um, and actually, let me, let me back up and talk about his parents a little bit, Christopher, before, um, because this, this will help set the table and understand his, his upbringing. Um, they were not wealthy clergy. There was um, kind of a, a sad split. Um, in, in the Church of England at the time, your, your, your affluence and your material well-being really had to do with kind of how, 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 how endowed what was called the living. I'm making scare quotes. <laughs> Listener, you can't see, but it was called the living. And it was really a kind of a, a jockeying and, a, and a, a system of um, kind of ingratiating yourself with a local uh, nobility <laughs> to try to get, because different nobility would have what was called the living in their honor, they could they could give it to whichever clergy they wished, um, and uh, he did not have a great living. His uh, this rectory at Epworth didn't have a great salary attached to it. So big family, um, well educated. Before his, I think this is apocryphal. I don't know. Maybe this is we could dig this up. What is it, Christopher? Before his fifth birthday party, before kind of the party began, mm, mm. he had to kind of recite declensions or, or verb tenses. In he he had to recite his latest Greek lesson. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so Susanna Wesley herself was, was quite the intellect. And uh, this is probably my favorite uh, part of his upbringing that really kind of uh, gives us a sense of how serious their Christianity, how serious their churchmanship was. And, and maybe we should kind of cringe a little bit with how casually we carry our churchmanship. I do when I, when I think about this. Um, Samuel Wesley, the father, um, so this is happening in the 1790s. Samuel Wesley was a, a, a priest already in the Church of England when a particular controversy flared up. Um, and that is to say in 1688, there's something that's called the Glorious Restoration. Revolution. Glorious Revolution. Yep. Thank you. <laughs> the restoration had occurred in 1660. Uh, Glorious Revolution in 1688, uh, James II flees the country as uh, parliament essentially invites um, <laughs> a, a Dutch, Dutch royalty, prince, yeah. <laughs> a Dutch prince, like, Hey, if you came and challenged our King, we would, we'll we would allow it. We would maybe make you King. And so he, he, um, this is uh, William of orange marries uh, the daughter, Mary, the daughter of James II. James II flees to France. Uh, he was a crypto Catholic, and then he just was an out and out Catholic, which which really provoked a crisis, an existential crisis, because the uh, the, the 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 King of England was also <laughs> the head of the Church of England, the Protestant Church of England. So, um, however, all clergy had to take a vow 
um, an oath, uh, what's, an, what's called an oath of allegiance. Um, and so there are, there's this whole spate of clergy, and there's, there's an estimate. Uh, it seemed One study estimates that there are 339 members of the Church of England who refused to take the 1688 Oath of Allegiance to William III and Mary II because they had already sworn allegiance on paper and before God to James II. Mm. <laughs> and Samuel Wesley did not. Like the majority of the clergy, it's 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 estimated somewhere ninety-five to ninety-eight percent of the, the clergy took the new oath of allegiance, but Samuel Wesley or Susanna Wesley was a Jacobite, uh, was was loyal to James II, and there is starting in sixteen eighty-eight a gap of five years in which they have no children, which is something <laughs> because they're extraordinarily fecund. Uh, their fecundity is yes. John was the 15th of their children. And Charles- so Susanna appears to be punishing Samuel for <laughs> just uh, casualing, for, for holding his um, oath to James II cheap. She appears to have been a lay non-juror. And there was, it appears that there was a larger mass of lay non-jurors who were scandalized that, um, that their local rectors were just okay with signing a new oath of oath of allegiance to a new king. So these are these are people who who take their their Christian Christian faith seriously, um, who take their oaths before God seriously. And um and I, I just find that um and also that is a that was a mark of high churchmanship um was uh, was uh, allegiance to James II. Um so in any case it's there's Susanna. So she's teaching her children that was that was their educator her, was her many children. Her many children. Yep. which which is just a marvel to me i mean <laughs> yeah that's right I, so charles was the 18th was he the 18th and last of their children uh, that's a good question do you want to you can effort that uh, if you want uh, um that's okay we it's so not in, important to this discussion in 17 here's what's important to this discussion in 17 1729 um john wesley is recalled to oxford um, to fulfill his fellowship there, where he joins his brother Charles and some other people in a religious study group that begins to be derisively called the Methodists because of their emphasis on, well, a method <laughs> that is methodical study and devotion. And their method, it turns out, ends up being just strict devotion to the rubrics of the Book of Common Prayer. Um, they fasted twice a week. Um, they fasted on Fridays. Uh, and they also fasted, um, it seems, um, on the evening, the vigil before Sunday. So Saturday nights, they would fast. Um, they, they prayed together morning and evening prayer every day. And they were known for their frequent communion services, which the Book of Common Prayer also called for. So this, this would have seemed to be like a, fanatically, a fanatical thing to, um, um, on their own, to, to be having Holy Communion every Sunday um, and on, on, on feast days. And for this, they were called Methodists and fanatics, right? Um, but however, from 1730 on, uh, Christopher, um, they began to add, uh, they, they felt like um, a, a rigorous and methodical faith ought to have an effect in your daily life. And they begin to visit Oxford prisons, teaching prisoners to read, offering to pay their debts to get them out of debtor's prison, um, and attempting to find employment for them. Um, they also begin to attend workhouses, um, helping poor people try to get poor people networked so that they could leave workhouses um, um, and get apprenticeships, apprenticeships with local uh, 
artisans, um, distributing food, clothes, medicine, books, starting up schools among uh, in the slums and among poor communities. Um, and this was called the Holy Club. Um, when they left the Holy Club in the 1730s, it, it, it disintegrated. Um, John Wesley, um, then he, uh, following his father's death in 1735, um, he's persuaded to go to Georgia in North America, an English colony, to oversee the spiritual lives of the colonists there and to um, do mission work with the Native Americans. Um, this was called the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel. Isn't that a great name, Christopher? It's a great name. I love that. Society for the Propagation of the Gospel. Um, there, his brother Charles goes with them, who is also ordained for this mission. Um, and, uh, and it doesn't go great, <laughs> actually. And he has one of, one of the more embarrassing episodes of his life, where he falls in love with uh, a, Sof uh, a girl by the name of Sophia Hopney, Hopke, who's the niece of the chief magistrate in Savannah, Georgia. And um, when she rebuffs his advances, he actually denies her Holy Communion at the altar rail <laughs> in a fit of spite. And so it, it, it all goes wrong. And in 1737, he, he flees back to England. Um, there he meets up um, with uh, a Moravian minister um, who kind of de uh, introduces him to continental pietism. This is kind of a Lutheran strain of faith. And he also discovers through that guy, Martin Luther's commentary on St. Paul's letter to the Galatian which emphasizes the scriptural, uh, the doctrine of justification, justification by grace through faith alone. On May 24th in 1738, having attended Evensong at St. Paul's Cathedral in London and still feeling spiritually kind of empty, he walks in to a Moravian church in Aldersgate Street in London and, um, and he sits down and um, at that meeting, at that, at that prayer meeting, he has his moment where Christopher in this great, where you and I both grew up Methodist and we were taught this, um, this phrase that he wrote down. <laughs> this sounds like English understatement. It wasn't understatement at the time. He says his heart was, do you remember this? Strangely warmed. Strangely warmed. And from there, from that point onward, that's it. he's 35 years old at that point, he viewed his mission as life as one of proclaiming the good news of salvation by faith through grace alone. And that is the essence of what we now call Christopher evangelicalism. And, um, and uh, he begins to preach in an entirely new way. If we were to go in a time machine, Christopher, and attend one of his sermons, it wouldn't be charismatic in the way that you and I think of charismaticism, would it? It would. He would have read it. He would have like had his like nerdy wire glasses on, reading a very fine print, long and boring sermon. But what made it different was this emphasis on Christ alone, the cross alone, faith alone for miserable sinners. Uh, and sermons before then were a lot about uh, the duty of man and um, what we might call kind of moralism or scriptural commentary. It wasn't this really hundred proof gospel, Christ for sinners, the blood of Christ for sinners. And that's 200, really 200 proof gospel. Yes. 200 proof gospel. Yes. That's how alcohol works. Yes, that's right. <laughs> 200 proof gospel. And, and John Wesley invents this out of whole cloth. 
after reading Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians and this, this conversion moment. Also, what comes from that is an emphasis on the conversion experience. Wouldn't you say that's kind of the fruit of Wesleyan, Wesleyanism, Wesleyanism and Methodism? And Christopher, I've been monologuing, and I know we'll want to talk about Charles Wesley as well. Um, uh, so do you want to, I, I don't know, you can pick up, you can talk about the legacy, um, kind of what happens with evangelicalism in England, the legacy of evangelicalism, the legacy of Wesley. I just, I, I've been monologuing, so. Um. Yeah, I, in college, wrote a paper on Wesley. I, I had seen someone say that he was the most influential person in England in his generation. Oh, oh. And, Easy. And I wanted to explore that and um, just became convinced that, that it absolutely was true. And perhaps the most, uh, well, I mean, perhaps the most influential person, person in England in several generations. Um, of course, there's a, a lot of, um, you'd be competing with a lot of different people. Cause I mean, you know, you, you had a number of different, I mean, he was just a generation before William Wilberforce. Um, mm -hmm. And, and um, I mean, there's a lot of different things going on, but can, can we dig into how he was influential? Sure. A little bit. So, so let, let's talk a little bit about um, kind of the, the urban revolution, right? It had to do with urbanizations, right? So the parish boundaries in the, in the 18th century were no longer reflecting where the population was. Um, so you had most of the churches were in, um, well, uh, villages that were emptying out and going to the cities, right? And so you had urban parishes that were just not equipped, right? You had London parishes that had, you know, literally 20,000 residents in the parish that had church pews that could, you know, accommodate, what, 200 people or whatever, right? And, and, so, he, and he's like, these people deserve to hear Jesus. They were not being reached, right? Yeah. And so yeah. what was his famous world? What was his famous phrase, Christopher? You tell me. I... The world is my parish. Mm, yeah. <laughs> right? If parish priests aren't reaching people, who will? We will. Yeah. yeah and it's interesting. Um, a contemporary of his is George Whitfield, and they're they're kind of paired together as mm -hmm. both being these uh, really influential preachers who would, who would go town to town and would preach open air to thousands of people and, and um, converted thousands of people. Um, Woodfield to me, although um, many people would, would point to maybe his doctrine being a little bit sounder, or at least certain people would. Um, Woodfield had, had a tendency, I think, for um, kind of some vainglory. Um, yes, yeah. Where... Um, this wasn't he. A lot of his work in America, his open field work, um, there were sufficient churches, and he didn't necessarily do. He didn't do anything to ingratiate himself with local uh, parish priests and uh, invite people actually into churches. He was essentially competing and and kind of like had this American strain of although he's an Englishman, like had this very individual individualistic strain of of like setting up. Um, uh, a kind of a competing thing with the with the existing yeah. church yeah. and and uh, where where Wesley like you were saying was was just looking for a way to funnel people in like how do we bring the gospel to the people mm -hmm. and um, he preached an average of fifteen sermons a week <laughs> and more than forty thousand in his career traveling all over England it's estimated more than two hundred fifty thousand miles um, and this was in an age when when roads were um, you know not great. Um, 
somebody described him. They said the last word in neatness and dress, his eye was the brightest and most piercing that can be conceived. But he's also a very slight man. He was only five, six and, 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 and thin, of course, you know, being someone as rigorous as he was, yeah. he wasn't overweight at all. Um, so he had to oftentimes stand on a chair or a platform to be seen. Um, crowds initially were hostile, but, um, but like he was very winsome and people mm-hmm. were converted um well we have to say there it was it was a charismatic like the holy spirit was doing something yeah in england and north america through him yeah yeah and um i also want to say i don't know like i want to talk a little bit about uh charles wesley's conversion did you want to talk more about john wesley first uh yeah let me let me type a a couple kind of of loose ends. So, I mean, what, the reason why there is a Methodist church now has to do with the fact that the Church of England um, uh, was re- had was really lacked imagination in how to integrate this and utilize this this, this obvious um, movement of the Holy Spirit um, uh, here, and um, was really inflexible and slow to move in kind of redrawing parish boundaries and thinking about how to bring these people into the church. And, um, and in the end, John Wesley, um, really kind of breaking Charles Wesley's heart in many ways, decided to begin ordaining his own people. And then at that point, you've broken apostolic succession and you've, you've kind of created your own sect, which yeah. is, which is, which is uh, regrettably, I, I say regrettably what he did. Now, to, to, to be fair, um, what he did is, is, um, he looked at his Bible and he said, well, this, the same word for overseer, um, presbyter, like there, there isn't uh, but he wasn't Presbyterian. Sure. He retained the Episcopal model. Like no, he was I, ordaining bishops. Right. But, but he's, he's saying um, this, this office of presbyter, um, this distinction between Bishop and priest doesn't seem to um, in scripture where, you know, early in practice, we saw, um, uh, where, where we would see a difference um, in scripture yeah. and and also early in the church. Um, really? Did he did he go did he go wobbly on on ecclesiology? I didn't know that. I didn't know that. In fact, I just recently perused, I, I read a review of a book that 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 argued the opposite. But if if so, I would I would say that's the ends justifying the means. Like he he went wobbly on that so that he could justify sending out his own shock troops. Not shock troops. I shouldn't say that. His own evangelists. Yeah. And what I'm saying, Christopher, I guess, is um, regrettably, you see his legacy spinning out, out of control of the church and, and, and kind of an own, a sect being created. And that's too bad. Methodism in an alternate timeline, I think it was easy to do. Methodism would have been um, kind of a school of churchmanship, evangelicalism, just within a stronger, larger wing of evangelicalism within yeah. Anglicanism. Yeah. I, I really kind of wish that would pray, have played out. And there continue to be ecumenical talks. Uh, that I think that would be that would be really neat. And it makes total sense. Um, uh, the, the commonalities are just are just so remarkably they're they're there. I think that would be really low hanging fruit to have a Methodist and Anglican reunion. Um, uh, was it, there was one other one other kind of thing I wanted to tie up before we went into. To Charles Wesley. Oh, I just wanted to say this about about John Wesley, and then Christopher. I'm sorry. I, I promise I'll, I'll I'll clam up and I'll let you say this. Um, 
Uh, John Wesley, we because of, he's attached to his legacy Methodism, there are lots of things that we don't know about him. Um, for example, he had a high reverence, Christopher, for patristic writers, loved the church fathers, loved Chrysostom and Augustine, um, and, uh, and, and he loved the Restoration Divines as well, Lancelot Andrews, uh, John Jewell, um, had a reverence for Charles I, King and Martyr, um, uh, was even interested in the Counter-Reformation saints, right, saints of the Roman Catholic Church after the Reformation. Um, he had a high view of the Eucharist, um, strongly believed in weekly uh, celebration of Holy Communion, believed in baptismal regeneration, which like what Methodist believes in that now, um, prayers for the dead as the 1662 Book of Common, uh, Book of Common Prayer had, um, and advocated a, essentially a monastic pattern and cycle of prayer and fasting. Um, none of this is retained in Methodism now. And I think that's to the loss, to the loss of Methodism now. Um, I also and, think- And there's also a Wesleyan denomination called the Wesleyan Church. Right. That also, right. It's, it's not present there, yeah. I also think that he was, he, he kind of blew off warnings of uh, what was happening um, uh, with kind of the lay people that had been enthused and armed and were being sent forth, um, that there was kind of a, a, a slipshod quality to kind of uh, some of the people that were kind of um, preaching in his, in his name. And Charles Wesley was very concerned about that. And only too late did, did John Wesley understand kind of what he had wrought. Mm. Um, so I think a lot, of, a lot of Wesley's legacy that's attached to him is, is probably unfairly attached to him. And, and those who claim Wesley's legacy um, could afford to grapple with in, in, um, the, the, his, his Anglicanism, basically, his faithful Anglicanism, and, um, and maybe kind of peer into that a little, a little more. All right, that's all. You talk to me about Charles Wesley. Yeah, I guess uh, if, if I could just uh, conclude with, with, with John is, is just the, the missionary zeal the missional Amen. zeal, I should, I should yep. say, was was really um, to be applauded. That that um, especially looking back from 2021, um, from in the year of our Lord 2021, when um, so the era that, that that he lived in was one where you just kind of you built your church and then like you, you people knew where to get God. Right. And like, and uh, he's like, no, like that's, that's not sufficient. Like we're going to go to the people and we're going to take the right. word to the people. And uh, today we live in a post-Christian uh, culture where uh, it's insufficient to just build a church and put up a sign. And, uh, and so uh, the church needs to re-realize yes. um, li like these methods of, and I don't mean his, you know, Methodist methods. Like, I mean, like, John Wesley's methods of saying like, like, how do we find ways of, of, of taking this outside of the walls? Right. Of the what is the 2021 equivalent of getting on your horse and riding to the yeah. frontier? Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and like preaching in the town square, right. you know, what, like, what, what does that look like? So, yeah. Um, so then to, to uh, make the transition to Charles Wesley, uh, most people know Charles Wesley probably as a hymn writer, um, as, as the, uh, uh, the writer of what, 20 no 6000 6000 hymns 6000 hymns unbelievable unbelievable 6, i continue 000. christopher every every yeah, month yeah. a new hymn i'm like oh this was charles wesley too yes right yeah where <laughs> there's several dozen that are are just 
th- that everybody knows, and you don't realize you know it, but um, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Love to vinyl, loves excelling. Love to vinyl, loves excelling. Low he comes with clouds descending. And can it be that I oh. can gain? Um, many, many uh, great hymns. Uh, but I also find his, it's interesting that both Wesleys went to America and returned um, before their conversion. And yeah. like you said, Kirk, they, they made friends with these Moravians, these these continental Lutherans, um, pietists. And um, there's a particular one, Peter Bowler. Um, yeah, yeah. Who, who took an interest in Charles. And uh, it's, it's uh, someone wrote that Charles uh, and John were almost in daily contact with Bowler after the re- return to England. And, and uh, I remember John and Wesley, I mean, it was years ago when I read about this, that, that they were really the faith of the Moravians was something that they admired and they didn't quite understand it. Like I think there were some storms, mid Atlantic storms where the Moravians were totally at peace and praying and they were just amazed by this. (laughs) And, um, but uh, the Moravians began to just kind of wonder about, about the convertedness of the Wesleys. And so uh, Peter Bowler asked Charles, he said, do you hope to be saved? And Charles said, I do. For what reason do you hope it? And Charles Wesley had this reply. He said, because I've used my best endeavors to serve God. Kirk, on the last day, what will you say? Will you say, God, um, I want you to um, accept me because I have used my best endeavors to serve you? Or yeah, will you plead Jesus and his righteousness? Yeah. I mean, that just portray, betrays the part of the spiritual poverty of rationalist mm. Mm, um, yeah, Anglican Christianity in like the early 1700s. Yeah, like yeah. the reasonableness of Christianity. Like I serve God. No, no, I will plead the br- blood of Christ before the throne as my only hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, Charles wrote, um, re- reflecting on this, uh, that that uh, he shook his head and he said no more. You know, like then like his res- like Charles looked at. Charles was like, I've endeavored to serve the Lord. And, and this guy was just like the way he shook his head and just stopped. Um, Charles was like, I thought him very uncharitable saying in my heart, what are not my endeavors sufficient ground of hope? Would he rob me of my endeavors? I have nothing else to trust to. And uh, of course um, it was also through um, reading through Martin Luther's commentary on the Galatians. So maybe he was part of the same reading group. Okay. Um, of course, Galatians is, is this great um, oh. book on, on, on grace alone yeah and uh so while john's conversion was may 24th 1738 charles was three days prior on may 21st mm. it was pentecost sunday kirk oh, oh, oh. and that's charles, a, that's amazing. charles said he felt the spirit of god striving with his spirit till by degrees he chased away the darkness of my unbelief i mm. found myself convinced i now find myself at peace with god and rejoiced in hope of loving christ so um, uh, days apart, um, both discovered um, just the radical grace of God um, and justification by faith. It's, it's interesting. Uh, th- that didn't exist, um, the idea of a, of, a, of a moment of conversion. It didn't exist then. And um, it was, yeah, it was a great... I, Go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm not sure. Like, I, th- I think it can be really unhelpful. Like um, in, in, in Baptist language, people talk about yeah. like, when were you yeah. saved? Yeah. And so like, I don't know, like clever Anglicans will be like, well, yes, I was, you know, 2000 2, years, years ago on a hill yeah. outside Jerusalem. Yep. 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 <laughs> and, and, and yet, you know, we say um, it is accurate to say 
we have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. So um, we were saved 2000 years ago by the work of Jesus Christ um, that was applied to us in our baptisms and, um, and uh, our continuing faith in him matters. Um, we can certainly turn away from our, the, the promise Christ made to us in our baptism. We can certainly turn away from that. And, um, and so our hope is to be saved on the last day um, based on the, the, the truth, the reality that, that God doesn't lie, that the things yeah. he has promised, he will, he will, um, he will make happen. Yeah. So I guess I was going to say that, um, that being a novel idea, um, uh, was, it was a blessing to the Wesleys at the time. Um, uh, I wonder if it, if it sometimes at, at my most skeptical, I wonder if it's run its course and now has become a, a noose, sure, um, sure. A, a law um, for especially for people who can't name a date and then they begin to wonder and it actually is a source of doubt not assurance which right. for the Wesleys it was the opposite it was a source of assurance so yeah. so yeah I I mean well and and Kirk can you can you remember the day that that you were converted okay well depending you upon, probably you, you you perhaps can depending depending upon my mood um, yeah, whether yeah. I'm being puckish ironical or antagonistic I, I i do sometimes i i will say yes two thousand years ago on the hardwood of a cross or i will say yes i was baptized sometime in the winter of 1979 yeah. 1980 <laughs> um or or sometimes i will say yeah um i was an unbelieving young man and i found myself and i know i know the church i don't know the day um but but after a particularly forgettable sermon in uh, Calvary Episcopal huh. Church, yeah, yeah. Pennsylvania, reciting the uh, the Nicene Creed like loudly and emotionally, and suddenly becoming embarrassed and aware, and of and, it. and it was and realizing I yeah. believed it fervently. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that that's that's the hope. The hope is is for your children. Is is the hope is to have children who um, take those baptismal promises as their own. That that we yes. baptize our, our babies and that they grow up to um, to. Um, believing those things and um that that it isn't a day my hope is that my kids won't have a single day where they're like well gosh i was far from god i was you know on and then i you know chose him you know the, the hope is that that they they trust god um the, the promise that was um given to them in in baptism yeah so perhaps we we can end end by uh and and uh, thinking about this christopher i had told you that i had I had scheduled, and then it, then then it didn't work out, and we took a different direction. I had scheduled as one of the hymns um, that we were going to sing after communion, and can it be a great Charles Wesley text? But I but I think um, this captures exactly mm, yeah. um, the sense of uh, the true freeing, liberating sense um, when your heart truly apprehends just how saved you are by the cross of Christ, right? Um, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? And I mean, every verse is just amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, but don't you feel like that that captivates as well um, that particular evangelical sense of when the true savedness of our sinful soul apprehends the power and the love in the blood of Christ, just how beautiful the cross of Christ becomes? Mm. Yes, absolutely. And that didn't exist 
as a style of churchmanship prior to the mm-hmm. Wesleys. Um, we, we can't say, I don't say they invented it out of whole cloth. The Holy Spirit used them as a vessel yeah. to birth evangelicalism in English-speaking Christianity. And we are all the richer for it. Amen. Any final thoughts before we end in prayer? Let's pray. Let's pray. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Look with compassion upon the heartfelt desires of your servants and purify our disordered affections that we may behold your eternal glory in the face of Christ Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Lighten our darkness, we beseech you, O Lord, and by your great mercy, defend us from all perils and dangers of this night. For the love of your only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Next week, Kirk. Next week. Oh.